Hello, mainstreamers and cinephiles and everybody in between. I'm Bryant. And I'm Caitlin. And Operation Silver Screen is a go. Welcome, everyone, to another weekly debrief. Each week, Caitlin and I take on a case from our backlog of must-see films that either one of us or both of us have yet to see. In our debrief, we'll provide not only our opinion of the film, but we'll also discuss its significance and influence in both the film industry and society as a whole. Along the way, we'll also provide other fun trivia and insights on the film. Caitlin, what was our assignment this week? So this year's AAPI month is coming to a close, but we're not done yet here at Operation Silver Screen. And this late spring, we traveled back in time to give our debrief on our earliest film that we've actually tackled to date. And it's the 1949 Japanese drama, fittingly called Late Spring. Hmm, Hitting those double themes. (laughs) Now, before we do get into it, I do want to mention that the first part of our debrief will be spoiler free as we talk about our overall thoughts on the film. But as we move into the classified portion of our mission, there will be some spoilers, but we'll be sure to give you a heads up when we get to that part. So let's go to get into why we chose to watch this film. And like I said, it's a fitting late spring. That's we're late May. We're hitting the end of AAPI Heritage Month, which is I think tomorrow. So I thought that this was going to be a good choice. And I wasn't super familiar with this film. But I recently became familiar with it because it was listed on Sight and Sound's 2022 list of the best films ever. So that's how it came to my knowledge. And Bryant, did you have any uh, familiarity with this film? Uh, Yes, as you know, I am very knowledgeable on the late 40s Japanese era of film. Uh, (laughs) I took several... No, I had no idea. Uh, Yeah, this... um, not saying that this is not a claim, it's just maybe I came across it, but I don't remember. What did you find about the critical response to this film? This has a 8.2 on IMDb. It has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, though it only has, it's not certified fresh because it only has 25 critic ratings. They, that kind of happens with older films. Mm-hmm. But you have a 92% audience rating, and this is also part of the Criterion Collection. Yeah, so this was released in September 1949, and it got a lot of critical acclaim in Japan. It's cited as a masterpiece, and they praised its character work in a lot of the early reviews. Its director, uh, Yasuhiro Ozu, is sometimes referred to the most Japanese director of all time. And the Japanese magazine Kinema Jonpo in 2009 polled it as one of the best Japanese films at all time, setting it at number 36. It won four prizes at the... Main Chi Chi Film Awards. I'm probably pronouncing this wrong and I definitely apologize for that. Uh, but that was an annual film awards that's sponsored by a newspaper of the same name. And it was the first film festival in Japan starting in 1946. It won Best Film, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Actress for Setsukuhara. Outside of Japan, it was also received favorably. It was released in North America in 1972 to good reviews. As you said, it was restored and released by the Criterion Collection in 2006. And as I mentioned before, it does currently reside at number 22 on Sight and Sound's Greatest Films of All Time list. And beating it, actually, Tokyo Story is a successor from the same director and part of the same trilogy that this is from. It resides at number four, so we'll have to give our review at some point on that film as well. I was surprised. This really doesn't have too much to do with the film, but before 2022, their Sight and Sound list, I forget which year it was, but it was at number 15. And this was pushed Mm -hmm. down, but it was not pushed down by any newer films that have been released since. So it was just, I don't know, it's just kind of interesting to see how people's view have changed and their voting has changed, even for films that like have already came out. Yeah, and I think that too, part of it also might just be who they're getting to vote. And maybe if they've uh, gotten a larger criteria, a larger poll of people to vote. Right, right. So Late Spring is a film based on the short novel entitled Father and Daughter by the novelist Kazuo Hiritsu. The film follows 27-year-old Noriko and her widowed father, 
Shushukichi. Noriko enjoys taking care of and spending time with her father, but one day her aunt and father decide it's high time for Noriko to be married. And she maintains throughout the film that she does not want to marry, as it is her wish to provide care to her father. But as she is put in a tough position, when talks of her father remarrying begin to surface, and she no longer can hold on to this as an excuse as not to marry. So Brian, this is our both of our first time watching this. What did you think about this film? All right. You pushed me enough, Caitlin. I'll, I'll tell you. All right. You want to know? You want to know really what I thought? I was bored. I'll say it. I was bored. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. I wanted to like this so much more. Okay. I, I don't know if people are going to come after my cinephile license for this, but I was bored throughout this film, man. Uh, I, I do like the themes that they have in here, but like it's, I feel like there's just not enough dialogue to tackle. All like to ta- I feel like they could have tackled it more, but I do really like the fact that she is staying behind to help out her father, and that's why she's not continuing on with her life. But in between the themes, I, I, there's just not a lot happening in this movie. However, this movie does it does look good. There is a certain style for for 1949. There was more of a style than I thought I would see, especially we're talking about pre French New Wave. There were a lot of outside shots. There were, I don't think anything was really a set on this. I really did like the father. Uh, Ara, she did a great job as well, though. I thought she was a little too smiley. Like mm-hmm. something was yeah. off. Like there's there's a body in the basement type yeah. deal. But as the movie went along and she kind of dropped that a little bit. And I think during like a moment of sadness, it, that kind of stands out. Because she's seen smiling throughout the whole time. But just not much happens in this movie. And this isn't a super long movie, but it's not it's not short. And I, I thought it was I thought it was and I don't even think I can say that it was dragon. Like it, it wasn't really dragon, but there was just nothing I just don't think there was too much to this. It is a simple film, and I can see why you were bored. I don't think that for the most part, I struggled with that, except for one particular part in the middle, which I will say did absolutely drag for me. Um, it definitely is a film that you have to you have to be patient with it. It's not not a lot is happening. A lot of it is just dialogue, and a lot of it is very uh, enclosed to the house, and there isn't really much exciting things happening. It is a lot of dialogue and a lot of everyday conversations and everyday life. And some of that was a little bit difficult to get through, but I don't think that I was fully bored. And I think that what was happening in the narrative did keep my attention because while this isn't necessarily the most narrative heavy film, or at least not the most plot heavy film, there are things that the director does uh, with the narrative here that I thought were very interestingly done. Things didn't usually pan out how I expected, and things aren't shown the way I expected it to be shown. And I'll talk about that a little bit later as well. But I... It's not a film that I am keen on revisiting anytime soon, but I didn't dislike it. I think there are a lot of points that I did enjoy. Uh, I do agree with the performances. I, I really did like the father in this film, even though he made some decisions that I I don't think that I fully agree with. And the daughter had some good moments, but I do agree that she was a little bit too smiley. There were times where she was actually criticizing others, and she was still smiling, and it made it felt a little bit psychotic. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the kind of one that, like, throws you off. Like, did she just insult me? It is is weird, because I, I can't say this is a bad movie, nor that I really disliked it, but... I just didn't find it. I guess I did, didn't find it entertaining. And I don't know if I was just, I know my concentration has been kind of off this week. Cause uh, I was telling you before, like I was having some sleep issues. Uh, no, I'm not going to revisit this film because of that. But I, yeah, I just, I didn't find this film that entertaining, but there were things that I like and that I appreciated. And I could tell that this was a good movie. It's like looking at a good painting, but you have to stare at the painting for a little too long. Like someone just kind of has you strapped in and you're just staring at this one painting. It's like, well, can I move on? No. Keep admiring it. Like, <laughs> it, Yeah, I, I really did like the father's uh, portrayal 
I am curious what you didn't like because I really can't think of any scenes off the top of my head as far as his decisions. I guess that we'll get into that in spoilers. But I, yeah, it is a simple film, and I, I don't mind simple films. There's there's a lot of simple films that I really like. There's a lot of one location settings, but I think they're they're made entertaining. And I think they're made better because of the dialogue within them. I, I think with those those movies that I really like, where they just take place, where they are a simple plot, simple narrative. I think there's a lot of engaging and a lot of intelligent dialogue throughout the film. And I didn't feel it with this. I, I didn't, I didn't hear it with this. I don't think there were, I think a lot more could have been said. I think if this had some better writing if this, you know, you had a really good writer, I think they could work well with this story, but I, I think that was far and few in between. Yeah. I, I don't think I agree with you there because I actually, I, I did like the writing in this and I liked that, there was a lot that wasn't said. Uh, there's a lot that you do need to kind of read between the lines and kind of understand. You need to draw your own conclusions for a couple things in this film, and I think that was done intentionally. And I think that the relationship here between Noriko and her father was interesting, and one of those things that I felt like you kind of had to read between the lines was that this is a girl who did lose her mother, and now she has this attachment to her father that she's just really clinging to and is unable to let go of and I thought that was interesting um, how that is portrayed there and especially because this was set during a time where there was a lot of unrest in that time period and there was a lot going on and there's some cultural stuff there that is an influence as well so I, I did find her relationship and her attachment to her father something very interesting. Now okay I did read between the lines. I got that one, her connection to her mother and why she's clinging to her father. And I did like that. That's one of the parts that I, that comes kind of towards the end of the film. And I really like that. I think as the movie's going along, I am liking it more, but I think already like just with a slow start, like I'm kind of, I'm already losing focus. Like I've already lost focus actually. Uh, but yeah, there were some things that were interesting and that's why I got to say this is a good movie. Like, just, not just technically, but, like, not technically, like, the equipment and stuff they use. I mean, like, technically, it is a good movie. I don't know if that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying. Um, something else I liked in this, in the narrative, is just that Noriko keeps saying she can't leave her father alone. She can't go get married because in this situation, like, you'd have to, like, once she got married, she would leave the house and, and she wouldn't be there to take care of her father. She's not... This film really treats marriage as a... I read somewhere that they treat marriage as a death, and I, I kind of got that vibe because it's like there's a total separation almost. And while it, it it seems a little weird looking at that from today's lens, at the same time, we do kind of have that a little bit in modern weddings that I've been to anyways, and it's something that's kind of always bothered me <laughs> about modern weddings that I've been to because it's treated as this big emotional event and everybody's crying and stuff because they're letting go of their family member which I'm like you're gonna see them next week it's not really a big deal <laughs> but it, it, it does get treated that way but something about this narrative that I thought was interesting is because she's like oh, oh my father can't take care of himself and she paints him out to be this like you know this useless weak character but then you still see scenes of him where he is doing stuff he's he's hanging up his clothes he's doing different things he has a maid in the house that takes care of him that does stuff for him so it's really not true so I kind of thought that was like a funny instance of the writing as well where it was definitely a show don't tell moment they did they did have a lot of show don't tell moments I give mm -hmm. it that and you know that goes to the director so I think he wrote this as well yeah yeah and I would say this is one of the films, though, that when I read more about it, I did respect it more. And there's been other films like that where I was like, OK, I see what they were doing now. Now reading it and seeing somebody else's, you know, somebody else putting it into words for me or, or coming from the creators. What did you think about the romance in this scene or this movie or the lack thereof and how it's portrayed? Asking me that question, I'm going to give it thought now. This is what I was really thinking at the time, or at least consciously. But I, I like it because I think this is what the movie was trying to portray in that the marriages in this movie and the relationships aren't so much about romance as they are about a 
sort of dependency or assistance through life. Because mm-hmm. everybody was saying, like, she needs a man, you know, to take care of her or she needs a man to have her focus on uh, or the father getting remarried so that he has somebody taking care of him. And you know, this is another movie where, where we talk about arranged marriages, but this isn't like the arranged marriage where we're just trying to combine two families. This is where, or, or trying to give a man a woman so that he can be taken care of, of, but this is arranged marriage to kind of mutually benefit. And all those conversations, they all lack, I mean, they'll talk real quick about the romance, see if they got along. And really the one that was worried about it was the father. And he has some good moments showing that on his face because he was actually concerned about both of them. He wanted her to be taken care of, but he was hoping that she would find somebody that she likes as well. Mm-hmm. So I yeah, I think, man, we're going to be talking about this film and it's going to make me like it more, which <laughs> it, it's, some films are like that way. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember what I was going to say earlier in the mood for love. This may be in the mood for love for me where I didn't enjoy it so much the first time and I missed a lot the first time. But watching it a second time, I see more of that. Mm-hmm. So actually, I may revisit this one day, especially knowing that this is a trilogy. I may watch another one. If I like it, I may go back to this one. Yeah. Like I said, we're definitely going to have to watch Tokyo Story on the podcast at some point. Yeah, so if I like Tokyo's story, I'll go back and watch this film. But yeah, just talking about that one question, you know, just having that conversation. I'm like, okay, that's actually, that's clever. All right. Yeah. I don't, how did you feel about it? Uh, I think that I agree with you. It, it wasn't a big central part of the story, but I think sometimes it actually subverts expectations in a way because things happen where you expect to bear to be romance or a budding romance, and then it... it cuts past it it dies it down it subverts it and so i thought that was interesting in kind of devaluing the romance aspect of this situation it is interesting because especially this being so early a lot of times when we see the whole anti-arranged marriage it's because of a lack of romance it's because they don't want to do this because they're not in love with that person they're in love with another person or they just don't find that person to be attractive at all in any sense yet this is done because she wants to continue helping her father. And I think it's also just a fear of change, too. I, I was just about to say, but then I had a burp, so I couldn't get it in, in time. <laughs> but I was just about to say, I, I, you can also speculate that she's using her father as an excuse to move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because she what does seem kind of unambitious. She does. And and she's 27. Like I said, but she's in the late spring of her life. And it's a time where she, you know, she should be kind of moving past some of these childish attachments. Not that being attached to your parent is childish, but uh, to a degree, the way she is, is, is very childlike. Yeah. What did you think about some of the side characters like her aunt and her, her divorced friend? Her aunt was a bit typical. At least from what I was expecting with that, though she did she did bring me some laughs because she was like, "Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna be subtle with this," and then she just straight up came out with the question, "So you like him? You gonna marry him?" <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, yeah, how's I your said day? I wrote in my notes. Does does every culture have just have busybody ants? <laughs> oh yeah, she is that aunt that always asks you when you see him. Like, I was like, "You seeing anyone yet?" Mm-hmm. No, like, you just asked me this on the phone. <laughs> uh, the side the side character, her friend. I like her friend. Her friend brought some unexpected commentary into the conversation, which she was a divorce E, which I really wasn't expecting too much from 1949 to see a Mm -mm. a divorce woman and hear her opinion. Yeah, it's it was it was another angle that I did appreciate. Yeah, it was interesting because I felt like this film was very open minded when it comes to marriage uh, I mean, her divorce friend is never shamed for being divorced. And uh, there's another part in the film where Noriko is shaming uh, another widower for remarrying. But then she kind of realizes the error of her ways and people are kind of making fun of her for, for having more traditional values in that regard. And so it really it kind of is open in that way as well about remarriage. It is an interesting kind of switch and you use the word subversion because we would usually see the older folks being more traditional especially a father mm-hmm. i mean with ddlj we saw the father like that he was the more traditional 
one. Yeah, and, and the father in this film, he was he was very open minded. There were moments in this film that also made me laugh. Like you said, the aunt made you laugh a couple times. There's also a, a moment where they're making fun of someone's name because I guess it means a bear, and they're saying that he would have a hairy chest, and I, I just thought that part was hilarious. So there's like there's good humor in this that I appreciated. Yeah, there is some good humor. And you're talking about getting together with the family and being asked that question. You also get together with the family and they kind of, this feels like that kind of family interaction humor. Yeah, definitely. That did have me laughing too, because again, the aunt is a bit concerned about her finding somebody that she likes. But at the same time, she's like, she she wants her to kind of put her standards down a little bit. She's like, meet me halfway here. I do want to talk a little bit about the camera work and the cinematography here because it's it's really there's a lot about it and a lot about Ozu's style here. Um, he uses what they call a tatami shot, which is usually the camera is set so low. So it's almost as if the person is kneeling on a tatami mat is what it is. And I guess this is something that he does in a lot of his films that he uses these really low angles and he uses, uh, camera shots that really focus on the character who's speaking. Often he violated the 180 degree rule, um, when he was doing dialogue. And the 180 degree rule, if you don't know, in filmmaking, it's it's a rule in filmmaking where if you have two characters in a scene that are talking to each other, you, you want to stay on a 180 degree plane because if you switch over, it will make it seem like one character is on a, an opposite side of the screen than what they were in the previous shot. I don't know. if Does that make sense, Brian? Am I explaining this right? <laughs> You lost me at opposite side of the screen. Are you talking about like being a bit further back or up front? So if you're looking at two people talking, you see person A is going to be on the left and person B is going to be on the right. But if you were to like go break that 180 degree plane, like if you're looking at, if you switched over so you're like behind the characters, person A is now on the left side and person B is going to be on the right side. Oh, okay. I got you now. Okay. As I say, this is really difficult to explain. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I understand. I think most viewers will, or at least uh, uh, go, hey, maybe we'll put a link for a video to kind of show yeah, it more. Yeah, like, I, I will definitely post something because this is something that is difficult to explain on a podcast setting. It's definitely something that it's easier to visualize. But yeah, he, he frequently violated with this. He didn't really care about uh, this. He, a lot of times he just kind of, uh, showed the figures head on when they're speaking. He really wanted to focus in on the characters and their mannerisms. Another thing that he does with his camera work is that he really uses a static camera. He doesn't use a lot of camera movements at all. He keeps it pretty still. And sometimes that also might be another reason why you got bored because sometimes you think there's going to be movement and there's not. Like the static camera often undercuts movement. There's a scene where she's riding a bicycle and you would expect to see some movement with her, but it seems so stationary. It's almost like she's just like floating on a bike. Like she's not really going anywhere. Okay. I remember that scene. Yeah. I don't think I noticed it it at the time. It was really focused on just like this close up of her face and it really wasn't moving with them. It was interesting. Yeah, that's one of the scenes where I thought, I was like, oh man, we're pre-French New Wave, but that that's something that you would see from that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to his camera work, he's really known for using what they're called pillow shots. It comes from Japanese poetic device where you use uh, like pivot words, pillow words, which are like transitional moments in a poem. And how that translates to films is a lot of times he'll take shots of different objects and things in the environment to kind of soften out the transitions in his scenes. And it kind of invites the audience to just reflect on what they watched. Real quick, I just want to hit back to what you said with the kneeling shots. Mm-hmm. I did notice that, and actually, I really like those. They did one with the, the kitchen and the father's asking her questions, and she's walking back and forth from the yeah. kitchen to the bathroom. And it was so interesting, like, I started thinking in my head, like, how they planted the cameras. It would angle like where at what corners did they have to set them? So I know that involves some technicality to it. And that's an editing thing as well, because a lot of times like people were walking in and out of scenes. He kept the camera steady and he didn't cut out. He didn't cut from that scene like he didn't cut on the action, which is what you would normally see 
in film, right? Like he would walk and he would cut on that action. Instead, he would just just let it be there and he just let them walk in and out of spaces. And uh, and I, I enjoyed that, actually. And I enjoyed the composition of these spaces because this was so focused on the interior house and the interiors here in, in these Japanese houses were, were, were beautiful. They're, they're wonderful for composing shots. Yeah, I was wondering, I was like, are the Japanese houses really this nice or is it just the direction of cinematography? <laughs> Yeah, I, like I, they just it just really worked in this film. With the dialogue, I don't think I noticed the transitions as much, but I did notice he had a pattern with with his dialogue. They kind of had a way of continuing the conversation, but not playing off of the last word that they said. There was like mm-hmm. a lot of there was a lot of avoidance or switching of topics, or maybe could staying on topic but not particularly answering the question. Yeah, yeah, I did notice that as well. Maybe they were kind of continuing with that poem, like it's two people reading the same poem, maybe something like that. But yeah, it was it was interesting. So I, yeah. again, I noticed a style there. Like it is very. There's a lot of distinct style sources here that I don't know that I fully caught all of them when I was watching. But once I I read more up on his style, it was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I see where he did that. The only thing that kind of annoyed me with the, the avoiding the questions because sometimes I was like and this is just me personally it's the cotton question all right I'm like this they're your elders show some mm-hmm. respect like he's been patient like this is a good man yeah. right here I can tell yeah Noriko did a lot of avoiding and I, I feel like she just uh, I don't know she didn't really want to express her true emotions but I thought it was was interesting because sometimes she would walk away from her elders and and you would see more of her emotional state when she's by herself because she didn't feel like she could show that to them to their faces Mm, okay yeah i now see mm, i see that too i see that too (laughs) but yeah she because she walked away sometimes even smiling that's the part that gets me i'm like i'm pretty sure like that would like get my parents too it's like (laughs) it isn't so much the avoiding the question as you're gonna smile when you walk away so you no. I see. I, I feel like I relate to that, though. <laughs> like, sometimes if I don't know what to say, I just kind of smile and I'm like, I'm thinking. But it's just like, this is an awkward situation and I don't really know what to say. But I'm going to smile because I, I don't want it to be off-putting. But at the same time, I'm just thinking in my head what I'm going to say. I relate to it. <laughs> oh, you're that like that person that just had a rough morning. You ask them, like, hey, how's your day going? And they're just like, <laughs> you t- uh, yeah, mm. all right. <laughs> yep. <What? laughs> yep, exactly. No, but he sometimes asks a question twice and she still didn't answer. And I was like, yeah, no. No. Not not in my household at least. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to talk about uh opinion? No. I, I, well, actually I will just add I, I know I started out with that I was bored and I'm mean, I'm still I'm not going to say that changed because that happened. I would say mm-hmm. though talking about this more and I'm pretty sure as we get into spoilers like I said before, I, res- I respect this film, and I can tell that it's a good film. And when I was reading about it, I respected it more. And now talking about it more and seeing the conversations that it brings up, I, you know, it, it is a good conversation piece as well. It's just not an entertaining film. Yeah. Yeah. There's Definitely not. There's not. not a lot happening. But seeing how like how the conversation that we're getting from it, you know, that's that's kind of where now my entertainment is is coming in. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's a film like that. Like I said, there's a lot that's not said and there's a lot that is left up to for you to, you know, make your own conclusions. And I, I do really appreciate that in the writing here. Yeah, this really is, a, you know, go back to the painting metaphor. This is like being at an art gallery and you see a piece of art and you may be like, I'm not too sure about that. But then somebody comes in with their opinion, maybe point some things out. Maybe you guys converse about something that it brings. You're like, all right, now I see. You know, it's, it's there to bring some, it's more there to bring something out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what did you find as far as the influence that this film had? As far as influence, I didn't find too much. I do know this is one of uh, Akira Kurosawa's favorite films. He's a very popular, he's, he's a famous and well-respected director uh, from Japan. And I still, ha- I don't think I've seen any of his movies. I am looking forward to talking about his movies. Pretty sure the first one we'll talk about is Seven Samurai. But seeing how this is one of his favorite films and predates him. I wouldn't be surprised if he had some influence. Yeah, and I did find a couple things on influence. One of the the major one is just how it influences Ozu's later work. 
Uh, well, first of all, this started a, a really big collaboration between Ozu and Hara. I think they worked on several other films together. I forget the exact number, but she was involved in the whole trilogy here. And, and this is a trilogy that isn't, it, it's kind of like an Oslo trilogy where they're not actually connected narrative wise, but they have similar themes. And in the film, Hera plays the main character in all of them, I, I believe so. But they they did collaborate a lot together. And, and I've, something that I found that interesting as a tidbit from what I was reading that I kind of, you know, it really touched my heartstrings <laughs> was that uh, the director of this film, he died in 1963 of throat cancer. And shortly after that, Hara, she, she quit acting and she quit making a lot of public appearances and she actually retired to the town where Late Spring takes place and where a lot of his films were shot. And yeah, so she kind of just lived there for the rest of her life until her death in, in 2015. Uh, and she just was really, really close to Ozu. So I, I don't know. It, it tugged at my heartstrings. Yeah, I, I did hear she moved there. I didn't know she died in 2015. She lived a long life. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did read, I was going to include that in my significance about how it started their relationship together and it really made Hera a star as well. Yeah, definitely. And as far as also influencing Ozu's work, there's uh, another film that he has called Late Autumn, which also deals again with a daughter who reacts negatively to the possible remarriage of her parent. Uh, this time it's a mother rather than a father. But just that similarity and that influence on his own work, I think, it is interesting. And it's nice to see because directors are always evolving and they're learning from what they did. And I definitely don't have an issue with someone, a director who takes an earlier work and, and kind of redoes it in a different way. I want to see him keep going. Late winter. <laughs> Late winter, yes. There is one remake of Late Spring that was filmed. It was a television movie. It was called A Daughter's Marriage, and there's also several other films that take inspiration from or served as an homage to Late Spring. Uh, some of these titles are not films that I've personally heard of, but some of you might have. It's Cafe Lumber, A Lonely Cow Weeps at Dawn, and Abnormal Family. It's also the first in this big, or one of the major players in this big uh, subgenre called uh, Shomengeki. It's a modern family drama that was really started by the director Yasuhiro Shimazu in the 1920s and our director Ozu he was actually a former assistant of uh, Shimazu and they're really the two prominent directors in this this subgenre that really is set in the house and like everyday life. In addition to this, the French director Claire Denise has acknowledged that her critically acclaimed 2008 film 35 Shots of Rum is an homage to Ozu. And there's also been comparisons of Ozu's composition to the stylings of Wes Anderson and Bong Joon-ho's Parasite as well. Ooh, I can see both of those. Mm-hmm. And it's like, obviously, they're different genres, different feels, but definitely I can see where they might have gotten influence from it. So let's go ahead and move on to significance. And there is a lot to talk about here. Did you want to start us off, Brian? Sure. So this is one of the first movies that took place in modern Japan. There wasn't there wasn't too many, or at least they were period films. So this really was looking at Japan as now. And this was a significant now for them. This was post-World War II, where the Allies were had occupied Japan as well, mm-hmm. which led to censorship, which I did not know about. I think some history buffs would be interested in it too, especially war history buffs, that while we were occupying Japan, we were censoring the media that they were creating and any movies that they created. So this movie, because they wanted to avoid Japan like having any criticism of them being there, anything that would turn citizens against them, make them look bad, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, f- I found that really interesting. I did not know that we were... It, I mean, it makes sense. I understand why... Know, why we why we were doing it not saying that was right but understand why and actually some of the content that didn't get made is in a library in maryland really yeah actually so next time i go to maryland i don't know if you want to come with if it if it's available to like see or uh, i don't know like really it's kind of hard to figure out what they have i don't know if they have films clips reels something like that 
but I would be interested to see it. Ozu also, I mean, I don't know how much of this is significant or more like a fun fact about him, but he was, he did join the Japan army and fought in World War II. But during that time, he directed propaganda films for the Japanese. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so you see a lot of, I mean, you see a lot of directors, probably like the most common thing that they come from is music videos. But to see a director come from propaganda videos, that's pretty cool. And I, I looked to see what, uh, see if I could find any of his propaganda videos. I could not, unfortunately. Uh, maybe I can dig in like some archive or something. Or maybe I go on, you know, some kind of quest in Japan, try to find these videos. <laughs> yeah, he. I mean, he's considered... I mean, a lot of people call him the most Japanese director, and I think a lot of it's just because this film and his other films, I'm guessing as well, just focus a lot on Japanese life and Japanese traditionalism, which is, you know, big coming out of World War II and and what that kind of means as far as, you know, nationalism and what he's saying here and just the way of life. And we do see this in the film. I was looking at some of the things that... Uh, may have been removed for censorship. Uh, some of it just has to do with arranged marriage and some of the family dynamics. Uh, but I also saw that some references to any ruins or devastation in Japan had to be removed. Uh, there was a reference to the Japanese Navy that had to be removed. Um, but in general, he did keep a lot of traditional ways of Japanese people in this film. He also snuck something in. He was he was clever enough to sneak something in. There was There's a shot of a Coca-Cola billboard. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, I mean, the army and everybody probably thought like, oh, it's just product placement, but it was to show how the Americans were currently in Japan and there is an influence that that's being done. Yeah. I mean, it also is the film tackles the theme of traditionalism versus modernism. Right. And we've seen this in, in other films that we've talked about. I think we talked about this in a mood for love as well. Um, and he does this in different ways. I mean, the Coca-Cola logo definitely talks about the approaching Western culture in, in Japan at that time. But then there's also some things with Noriku that is come up that talks about, you know, traditional ways versus modern ways. You see this at the opening tea ceremony. Uh, there's a, a ceremony going on with some of the women of the community and at her aunt's and she she shows up late. She shows up wearing a little bit more modern at the time look to her, and it kind of separates her. And she doesn't, you know, she's doesn't want to get married, which is different from the traditional uh, way of looking at things. So there is a definitely ways that Ozu is trying to show society at this time, and also showing how the elders themselves, how some of them do recognize it, like her father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, they didn't really mention too much for World War II, but it definitely is a big part in the story when you really examine it. We talk about, or the film talks about the health problem that Nariku had uh, prior to this film, when this film takes place. We talk about her blood count, and it talks about how her weight is looking, if it's healthy or not. And it mentions that this was just because of some of the jobs that she was doing during the wartime that her health had been poor. Also, a reason why that she's having trouble finding a husband is because there's a shortage of men available because a lot of the men had gone off to war and did not come back. So it it's a huge influence on this film. And, you know, I don't think I really caught all of that when I was watching but then going back and reading and understanding that, that cultural significance of it, it, it really does change how you look at things. Yeah, not only were the a lot of fathers killed going out to, or potential fathers and husbands killed going out to war, but you have to remember too, and I just thought about this, I mean, you had the, the two nukes that took away a lot of civilians. So there was a kind of a double casualty there, not even just the ones that went off the fight, but just the ones that were staying home or may have just returned home or may have been disabled. Uh, a lot of those mm-hmm. lives were lost, which is it's interesting when you compare it, how post-World War II, how we had a, a baby boom because mm-hmm. of our post-World War II, while on their side, there was a decline. Yeah, that's a good point. So in addition to this, uh, marriage was also something that was just changing during this time period as well. 
1948, there had been a law issued that allowed young people uh, over 20 to marry without parental permission, which was new. And then the Japanese constitution in 1947 made it easier for divorce as well. So there were just differing opinions on marriage at this time. So when this film came out, I, I do wonder what exactly the critical response was in regards to the marriage element in here. I wonder, too, why there were so many changes post-World War II as well. I wonder if the war had anything to do with it or if there was a or, or if it was just, you know, it just happened to be the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and like I said, it could also just been this. Um, I don't want to say rushed modernization, but since you have more of Western influence, you're going to have a little bit bit more of that modernization and the change into tradition that he likes to focus on. Because also, I mean, think about, again, America post-World War II. It's like women did have more rights as the war was going on. But then once it ended and the husbands got back home, we talked about it during the apartment. Like they were just put right back into the the kitchen and mm -hmm. uh, bearing children. And if they did work, they were secretaries. While Japan seems to have been given their uh, women more. Though I would have to look at women rights in the U.S. Uh, to, to see if like they were if any if there were any additional rights given post World War II because they were doing a lot during the yeah, war. Yeah, they were. Well, I think that's when I think that's when first wave feminism was on the rise, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah, because yeah, they pretty so, much made up the labor force. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so when they were told, you know, like we're going to go back to how things were, like that was a problem for a lot, and so we did see the rise of feminism. I think at the time. So who would you recommend this film to? I recommend it to cinephiles. Mm -hmm. I, I think, yeah, because even the way we're talking about it, it, that's the kind of research cinephiles are going to do. And the yeah. kind of research you have to do for this film. I don't think there's, yes. unless you're a history buff, unless you're from this time period, which is so possible. Yeah, so possible. Then then you're probably going to miss a lot of things here. And I, I don't think there's enough entertainingness to this film for general audience. Yeah, I agree. I definitely would not recommend this to a general audience. I definitely recommend this to cinephiles and, and like you said, history buffs, because there is there's a lot going on here um, from a historical perspective. And I think that someone who is really intrigued by that will, will have a lot to take out of this. Yeah, I'm not even a history buff and found a lot of things interesting and things were just popping yeah. up in my head for questions and how things were going. So I can imagine a big history buff having a lot of input into this and I can see a couple of them calling me out on some inaccuracies. Yeah, definitely. Now I think it's time that we go ahead and move into our classified portion of our podcast. So if you haven't seen this, it is streaming on I won't say HBO Max. It's Max now. Yeah, get <laughs> but that it's right. streaming on Max. <laughs> Uh, I did uh, post a link this past weekend. Uh, we're going to start seeing that more from us where we're going to be posting where you can find some of these films that we're reviewing. If you wanted to go ahead and give it a watch before we air the podcast. So I uh, hopefully you guys get some enjoyment out of that and maybe get some recommendations for your weekend watch. There are some additional places you can find it. Amazon Prime. There's a if you have the premium subscription so i don't know what additional channel is for but you can also watch it on plex for free i think that'd be hbo oh okay you can also watch it on plex for free i have no idea what plex is i'm guessing it's like probably like tubi and youtube if you have a prime time subscription or apple tv for four dollars i think max is the best suggestion at this point yeah max is definitely the best but hey plex? i don't know what I've plex is but it gives it. it to you for free you probably just have to watch it with ads yeah, probably. But if you haven't watched this yet and you don't want to be spoiled about what happens to our character Noriko here, uh, go watch it and then come back to this podcast when you have. So where do you want to start with our spoiler discussion, Brian? I'm trying to think of what to spoil. Not, I mean, we talked about so much. I guess really we can talk about the decision that she makes to get married. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably a good place to start. I think it's the only place to start. And then. Well, actually, no. Before no, there's a couple other things. Okay. But, but actually, okay. before we before we do that, because I started talking about it in our general opinion, but then I kind of didn't know if it was a spoiler or not. Did you think something was going to happen between her and her father's assistant? Oh, if this was another movie, yes. But I seen like how traditional she was. I did think she he was going to divorce or cut the wedding off and then marry her. I did think that mm -hmm. was a thing. 
But as the movie went along and the way that it went, I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. It's not that type of movie. Because I think that's more of a, again, I think that'd be more for a romance movie, like a romance play. And we already talked about, like, the it's not about the romance here. That's true. I mean, I definitely think that she had traditional values. And I don't think she would try to break up the marriage. And I actually did have a lot of respect for her character when he was kind of like asking her to go to a show or something with him, a violin performance. That's what it was. She was asking her to go to a violin performance with her. And she was like, no, like, that's not right. Like, you're engaged. And she might not like, like just the two of us going together. And I did have some respect for her there. Yeah, because I don't even know if she ever met the fiancé before. Because, I mean, Mm -hmm. we're pro-platonic relationship, but there are bounds still. There are boundaries, you know, based on your relationship with that friend and with their significant other. You know, that, of course, all boundaries and relationships are different. But, yeah, I I did respect that. And I would think from this time period, that would mean a lot more than it would mean today. Like, you Mm -hmm. and I going to see a movie in a theater, that's nothing. That's whatever. But, you know, going back, back then... You know, just being out with a woman alone, it's a little different. Yeah. Well, they went on that bike ride, too. And then, like, I think, too, that he was just, I don't know. I, I He was, he seemed like he was expressing interest in her. Even, like, the things that they were talking about. Like, when they brought up the, the radish uh, conversation, which I did have to look up what that referred to. But it was talking about her being a jealous type and, like, what type of person she likes. Uh, so, like, he definitely was bringing up conversations that would not be appropriate for someone who's engaged. Ah, yes. I mistranslated the radish. No, so the radish thing, I looked it up. So it's not radishes like we have here in the U.S. It's like a longer radish. And I guess when you cut it, the slices are like strung together in like kind of like a spiral, I guess, sort of. Or, Or they're strung together somewhere so they're connected. And they're not, it's not easy to separate from the pieces the individual pieces so that's what she's saying like she's not easy to separate from the object of her affection or in this case she's not easy to separate from her father right right yeah it did seem like they had a little something else there was like a little bit of romance in there which is why i was kind of expecting the breakup but she respected the bounds because she is a traditional woman she wouldn't even test those waters i'm not saying that if she wasn't a a, a traditional woman she would have broke up the marriage or something but i think by her being traditional, she takes a step even further back. Yeah, I mean, I thought that that whole relationship was an interesting, like I said, a subversion of expectations from Ozu. I mean, I definitely do think that he purposely added that potential romance or flirtationship there, but then he subverted the expectations by making it a non-issue. So he subverted the subversion? <laughs> no, just one subversion. Oh, okay, because I heard you say like three times. I was like, wait. <laughs> I was like, how many times can you subvert before you just end up back where you were? Yeah, if you're subverting a subversion, then yeah, that's just that's just normal. <laughs> but then let's go ahead and talk about her decision to get married. And I thought it was an interesting choice to to never show her fiance, and it was an interesting choice to not show the marriage or any of that that went on. Yeah, like you said, the romance is is out. Not to say that. There isn't romance, just that it's not the focus. Yeah. Because during the wedding, or when they're about to have the wedding, something like we see other characters after and before, because that's mm-hmm. more the focus is how are people actually affected by this. So let me ask you this. Do you think that Noriko wanted to get married at the end, by the end of this film? I think she was more open to it. It's hard to say without ever seeing her with the fiance that she was fully on board, but I think mm-hmm. she was more open to it. And again, I don't think her reasons were all about, I want to do this. I want to be with this man as much as I, as I also want to make my father happy. And as, as much as I love my father and things, maybe I should go ahead and follow his advice because he always has led me the right way. Do you think that she made the right decision? I don't know, because that's never a question I answer about marriage. You ever had a friend ask you, like, hey, should I get married? Like, no, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm not going to put that on me if I say yes, and that just goes violently wrong. And then I want to say no in the end with somebody, and that goes violently wrong. Yeah, well, so I ask because I know if you look up uh, Roger Ebert's review of this film, he really saw this as a, a huge critique of marriage and something that 
you know, nobody wanted to do in this film, but they felt like they were forced into doing. And he really saw this as a, a sad story. But then there's others that are like, you know what, this is, you know, she is getting older. Uh, you know, she's 27 years old. <laughs> no money, no prospects. <laughs> to go back to Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Um, and she's just in a situation that, you know, she can't be with her father forever. One day her father's not going to be around and she would just be left alone. And, you know, she really did need someone and especially during this time period. Um, so, so some people don't really see it as much of a sad telling or a sad story. Um, but I am curious of what your view was to that. I think it's, it's really unknown. and. I think, yeah, it is hard to say because I don't believe marriage is necessary, but if she was like holding back on her life, if marriage was really going to, you know, propel her or move her forward, the movie doesn't tell whether or not she believes that's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to get an idea because her restraint is coming from her either dependency or wanting to help her father. So when she decides to get married, you really don't know why she's, I mean, you can speculate a lot of reasons as why she's getting married. So I think just with that lack of, and, and it's not a, it's not a, you know, it's an intentional lack, but that lack between mm-hmm. her and the fiance and probably more like an inner monologue of hers. It's hard to say whether or not this was happy or sad. I think this is really neutral. I think mm-hmm. the better conversation to be had is Maybe like, what would you have done? How do you feel about it? I, I think it's more of a audience introspection rather than looking at the characters here. Um, At least I, I think, I think you I get more of a conversation that. that way. I mean, I think that there is a large conversation about, you know, whether she went with it or not. And what does it say about marriage? Because I think that's why critics have been back and forth with it. I don't, I think if it, you weren't meant to speculate, he wouldn't have written it that way. I, I definitely think that is intentional from Ozu. Um, you know, I think he wanted to spark a conversation in that regard. I don't think what I would personally do really matters. Well, I think it does because there's not enough, like you can speculate on this, but I don't think there's enough like evidence that anyone can pull to make a really strong statement that she wanted to or she didn't want to yeah but i think that's purposeful i think that's where the conversation like i said that is purposeful i think those are like they had an intentional lack of details but that's what i mean when i say an answer i don't think you can really give this you can't give this a concrete answer you can't say Mm -hmm. yes or no that's why i said if you turn it to yourself like if you were to ask me my opinion what i would have done then i'll be able to give you a concrete answer but for this, it's just speculation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I think I, what I'm interested in is how do you, not necessarily for yourself, but for these characters, what did you think of the outcome for these characters in particular? For the most part, I think everybody is on a good path. I see that the father did sacrifice some, but mm-hmm. I think he made a noble decision, honorable one. Um, I think I think he made like a really. <laughs> I think he made a very fatherly choice, kind of like we saw with DDLJ. You know, that, that father yeah. had to sacrifice something for their daughter. So I do see that. And as, as for the daughter, you know, it's, they don't make marriage seem so bad in this movie. Mm-mm. Like the one, her friend made a choice to get married and then she got divorced. She even says like, hey, with the arranged marriage, I don't know, you may be, you may be lucky. Like I ran away with, my own choice and that didn't work out so maybe somebody else picking for you would actually work better so again it's like it could work it couldn't work and didn't uh, she even say and if you don't like them to just divorce them <laughs> yeah yeah that's the other thing is that we know divorce <laughs> is an option and apparently it's an easy one because there's multiple divorce people in this movie and they're like all right yeah i got up left remarried now will she do that that's hard to say because she's kind of a uh, mm-hmm. in the mixed generation because her father doesn't want to remarry whether that's because of traditional values or his morals and respect for his uh, um, passing wife. Uh, yes, yeah, so you interpret that differently than I did, I think. I think that her father would be open to it. It's just not something that particularly interests him at this time. Um, going back to what you said that about 
her father's choice to push her towards marriage. I, I do agree. I think that he was thinking more long term and her long term happiness, where I think that she was seeing more short term, short short term. But he definitely is aware that marriage isn't easy, and he discussed his marriage with her mother and how he would walk into the kitchen and see her mother crying. And you know, it 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 is hard to say if this is a critique of marriage. I don't think it's as much of a critique as Roger Ebert said, but there is a sadness to it, especially at the end when you realize he has to go home and it's just him now. Um, it is definitely sad for her father at the end. Uh, and I'm not sure that it's as sad for Noriko because I just don't know if she really wants this to happen or not. So I guess I can't really, really comment on that. But it is sad for her father. The lengths that he did to get her to marry, I don't think that I agreed with his decision to fake his remarriage <laughs> and to lie to her, to, to trick her into getting married. Because, I mean, obviously that was an influence and it felt a little uh, manipulative, I would say. But I, I think he did have good intentions. I was thinking, what, what happens when they come back home to visit? Yeah. He's going to be like, yeah, she's, uh, she's out of town right now. Just keep that up till he goes. I I think also with the and I I know I kind of bounced around your question because I'm like I don't know maybe maybe not but I think there is enough evidence to say enough provided details that you can say like there is some good and there is some bad which I think is is written well because mm -hmm. immediately anytime that if you're out if you're in a culture that doesn't have arranged marriages you would think that's a ludicrous idea I mean we have so many movies against it as well. I mean, we have whole stories, fairy tales about arranged marriages and no, we're not doing it. But this movie, it makes arranged marriage not sound, it makes it sound more like a blind date than anything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that is interesting. And with the father, I don't know, like seeing how the father is throughout this movie, I think I could trust him a lot to make the right decision for her. And that gives me more hope that she is going to be in a happy marriage because I don't think the father would have influenced her, would have gone to great lengths as he did if he didn't have confidence in that marriage. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he was worried if she liked the guy and was happy with the guy when yes, she came back exactly. from meeting him. I did really like the scene at the end with him at the bar with her friend. I just think they had a really good dynamic and it, it felt nice knowing that, I mean, whether she holds up to it, I don't know, but that she said that she would come and, and visit him. Makes you feel a little bit better about him being alone. <laughs> yeah, that, I was kind of wondering. I was like, is he is he putting something down? Are they putting something down? Hey, a, a little bit. A little bit. I did get that okay, vibe, too. <laughs> okay, you were looking at me like, man, how you going? Okay, yeah, no, I'm lying. Yeah, I got that, too. I think it was like, like, uh, like a lot of it was like his facial expressions, too, in that scene, and he just kept drinking. And I was like, it's a little, huh, interesting. I wouldn't be against it. I mean, do what you want. <laughs> yeah, do what you want. I, I don't know. I, I always kind of not expect the worst. But I always kind of, I think I see like an ulterior motive when uh, anybody's pouring anybody else a drink and asking them yeah. questions. Because we see yeah. that a lot and they're doing it and getting them drunk so that they can manipulate them. Mm -hmm. Ratatouille style. <laughs> but I definitely didn't think that was his intention. <laughs> he is a good guy. I really yeah, did yeah, like he, him. Yeah, he is. But I don't know. You don't know about her. Now her, <laughs> I, I don't know. She is a divorcee. She, she is a divorcee, and hey, man, he may be her type. No, no shame there. You know, older guys. You know, older guys. I actually kind of hope that they do have something, and then Rico just comes home and is like, "What? You've been you've been doing what? I've been doing what you asked. You asked me to take care of your father when you're gone. That's what I've been doing. And I told you I was getting remarried." You told me to show him passion. Isn't this what you wanted? <laughs> yep. Oh, that's great. So do you think that this film holds up? I I guess not because of how much you have to look into it. Because I think if you saw this back in the day during the time, like you would have gotten it right away or, you know, with some mm -hmm. more thought put into the current situation. But I mean, technically it holds up. I just think, conver and conversation-wise, it holds up. I think even without arranged marriage, I think you can still have the conversation like, hey, is is marriage something that you need to be happy and to move forward? No, because that's something, you know, I don't I don't agree with, but that somebody may think differently. They may think that marriage is the way to go. So I think the conversation, and it, technically it holds up, 
but I think there's some additional things that you kind of, you have to go back in time and, and research. Yeah, I agree. I think there's definitely things about this that hold up. And I think that like the likability of the father and his compassion and, and how he treats her, I think that that certainly holds up as a story element, but this really is a, a I'd say a product of its time, but not in a bad way. Like usually we say that and we mean that in, in a bad way. But this, you know, so much of it is reliant on the cultural uh, and historical things that were going on in Japan at that time. That if you take that away, I don't know that the story is the same. Um, so it, no, it doesn't hold up. But at the same time, I don't think that you can't still learn from this and have enjoyment for this. Yeah. I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because I thought you were about to push me to make a yes or no decision. <laughs> and no, I'm with you. I'm like, not really, but in some ways, yeah. Yeah, like it's a very nuanced discussion. Like as a film, like as uh, you know, someone who enjoys film and and likes watching older films, I want to say yes, but you just can't divorce it from that context. Exactly. So, what is your overall rating for this film? Man, I. I was thinking about Sea Territory, probably like a solid C for this film coming into it. But after talking about it and at least reminiscing about the, the scenes and how it was shot, I would I would give this a B minus. Okay. Maybe maybe even a solid B. No, I'll stick with B minus. It almost would be a solid B if I was entertained more. And I think the, I don't know, I, I, I know that they're, it was an intentional lack of, but I would have liked a little bit more dialogue. Would I include this in like number 15 or number 2022 on my best of list? No, mm-hmm. no. I'm, I, do I understand it? Actually, not really. I don't <laughs> understand why this is so high, but hey, it, it is. And I mean, for me personally, from actually what I think about it from a, you know, say a critic point of view, B minus. Okay. Uh, I am gonna go uh, above you here on this one. I I did, I I did mostly enjoy this film when I was watching it. The only thing I didn't really like was that no play that just goes on and on in the middle. And I forgot to mention this earlier, but that really brought it down for me because that was the part that really truly dragged. The rest of it didn't drag for me, and, and I enjoy learning about the significance of this one. And it's something that I I really. I'm thankful for this podcast for, but I can have that learning. So I'm going to give this a, I'm going to give us a B plus. Okay. I, like I said, I was almost at a B's. You're not, I, yeah, I definitely I was understand torn that. Between a B plus and an A minus, but that play in the middle is going to take it down from being an A. Oh, I remember that. Oh, that play moment. That's when I finally wrote in my notes. I'm bored. That play yeah, went on for that, way I was too bored long. There, it was, uh it was rough, and, and like maybe also because I don't understand the significance of no plays. And, and just for reference, uh, that is a traditional play in Japan, and it was something that I, I wanted to. I wanted to look up more what it was about, but I wasn't able to find too much about its significance in this film like the, as far as like the contents of the play so unfortunately i didn't get to find too much information there because i would have liked to understand that better and maybe i would have enjoyed it better but just not having that understanding it, it just really really dragged yeah i should, that's probably why i didn't recognize that first when you said no play because i no play I think that's how you if you're not, that's not how you pronounce it I, I apologize and please please correct us on our social media with harsh criticism <laughs> harsh criticism really once again with any of our pronunciations uh if it's wrong uh obviously english is our first language and you know there's a stereotype that english <laughs> speakers always have this like a weird americanized accent when they're when they're speaking foreign languages and it, i mean it's true there's certain sounds and stuff that that we have trouble pronouncing and and <laughs> I know you can definitely tell that with me and Brian so like we apologize and we do ask for your grace and uh, do correct us please on social media if you can I don't know what's up with all this we talk <laughs> I want to say all I want to reply back is America maybe I'll give you a gift yeah. of a bald eagle <laughs> even right there I was supposed to say Jeff but nope gift <laughs> no yeah I would add on too you know I'm thankful for this podcast because this was a 
an interesting discussion. Again, that's what the discussion actually brought up my my rating for this and the research. And a lot of it I found very interesting in some of the things that we I only thought about as we brought them up, as we were talking about World War II, how this, I mean, we even went outside film. Like, how was the Japanese society really impacted post-World War II, how it compares to the U.S. side of things, not only population growth, but also positions of people in society and class, minorities. So, you know, that's, again, that's why we always say we, we discuss the movie more than we do a review. Yeah, definitely. So for our next film, you know, AAPI month is ending, but of course, we know we, it's never a reason not to continue uh, watching international cinema, and it's when I keep going because we're going to be watching a South Korean film next week as well. But we're also entering into Pride Month in June, so we kind of want to do a little bit of an overlap, and we're going to be watching The Handmaiden, which is a film that I've really been looking forward to, and uh, I think that you've mentioned it as well, Brian, is something you've been wanting to watch. Or am I wrong? No, you're right. I okay. I forget why it was after I saw a Decision to Leave. And I was like, man, I really mm. like that movie. And then something about Decision to Leave made me want to watch Handmaiden. It may be the same director, maybe. Uh, Park Chan-wook. Yeah. So I was like, ah, you know what, Caitlin? I'm going to go ahead and watch Handmaiden. You said, don't you dare. <laughs> like, it's an essential film. I'm like, God dang it. All right. I I'll know. Wait. And I've been, like, I think we actually scheduled this at one point last year. And then for some reason, we had to change our, our scheduling. And so I've been waiting to watch this. And I am so excited. <laughs> Yes, the the, the buildup is here. Yeah, I don't know. Something during like for like six months we had to keep changing things in our schedule. But luckily, you know, we're we're doing weekly now, so even if we do have to change things up, it, it's it's easier now. Mm-hmm, definitely. And so we mentioned uh, correcting us on our pronunciations, and if you want to do that, you need to reach us on our social media. And so you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at OpSilverScreen. On Facebook, we're at Operation Silver Screen, but on Twitter and Instagram, that's Op Silver Screen. If you also want to find us on our personal letterboxes, if you just want to follow some other films we're watching throughout the week, maybe take a look at some reviews on films that we don't talk about on this podcast. You can find us at our personal letterboxes. Once I said, Brian's at Swank Seal, that's capital S, capital S, and me, I'm at Coffee Spoon Kate, that's Coffee Spoon C A I T. Yes, and I know I don't have detailed reviews on my letterbox. I'm actually going to go through them soon maybe even tonight to at least put my star ratings on them i was thinking about that earlier but hey if you got any questions about our, our debriefs or our letterboxes just contact us directly and ask us yourself or start a subreddit and go into a complete conspiracy theory <laughs> but tag us till next time we'll be in hq i'm bryant and i'm caitlin see you